You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas Podcast. Welcome to the Manjeet Minhas Podcast. I am Manjeet Minhas, and each episode, we sit down and talk to different entrepreneurs and industry experts. My guest today started his career as an RCMP officer, but quickly changed paths to pursue a career as an entrepreneur, becoming the co-owner of Boston Pizza a chain of restaurants with over 400 locations across North America. You may also recognize him as the original dragon on Dragon's Den, the OG we like to call him on the show. He is the franchise expert, undoubtedly. Jim Tree Living, welcome to the show. Where I wanted to start with you was, you know, kind of back in the beginning. You're from um, and born and raised in Verdon, Manitoba. Um, What was it like? being raised in small town Manitoba? I wouldn't say exciting time, but it's just a, a quiet time, a quiet town. And uh, my dad was the uh, local barber and uh, he was the, uh, we call him a banker because he always had a little bit of water cash with elastic bands around it, you know, when you're growing up in those places. And uh, the world changed in Verdon in, I think it was 1955, when somebody decided that they would drill an oil well on their farmland, which was about a mile from the town. And they hit oil. All of a sudden we, I remember going to school, uh, I, I would be, you know, uh, just getting into the high, high school type of thing. And we found out all oh, there's a whole bunch of new p- kids coming to, into our class. And then we started seeing cars coming in with Oklahoma and Texas written on the, on the, on the license plates. So the, the world changed. We went from about 2,500, 3,000 people, farming community, to a uh, almost an oil boom. And it was like you see on the movies. It was all of a sudden we had all these new people coming to town, and uh, they're from all over the U.S. And I got turned 16, and there was a uh, drilling company that had come in from Calgary, and they were looking for hands to work out there, but you had to be 18. Well, I was 16, so... Uh, they came in one day and said, well, why don't the tool push is looking for some people out on the rig? Uh, do you want to go out there? And I said, sure. Thought maybe I wouldn't get into it. But uh, my dad had other other thoughts of being hanging around town. And uh, so he was the one that said, you know, you've talked about joining the Mounted Police. And, uh, you know, it's you're now 18. And what are you going to do with your life? And that's when I, in 1960, applied to get in. It took five months uh, after your application came in, and then I got the letter. I remember my dad coming from the post office with this brown letter from uh, Ottawa, and it's, I think he had opened it and looked at it because it said that you had to report for uh, training. That's when I knew that he, he had a grin in his face because he'd think he'd get, he'd straighten, get me straightened out at that point. That must have been exciting, but also kind of scary to go from a small town um, to now, you know, being going to go training for the RCMP at the ripe age of 18, uh, you know, just finishing school and really becoming an adult overnight and then having this massive responsibility of being an RCMP officer uh, that I can't I can't imagine the pressure that you must have felt. Well, you know, it was interesting because every one of us that joined like we didn't know one another we trained as a troop of 32 and they were from across Canada as well and they're from every walk of life and uh, places you'd never heard of you really got a selection of Canadians but we're all under the same auspices because of the fact that we'd all have to have, have the same records of type of thing after that you decided you're gonna leave and become a restaurateur well 
that was, I got stationed in, I got stationed in Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, the next thing I knew, I, a friend of mine, we were working on a, a, a murder actually. It was in Pinocchio, Alberta. I came back to Edmonton and as I walked in or drove back in, my partner said to me, let's go for a pizza. And I said, what? And he said, let's go for a pizza. I said, pizza? I've never eaten a pizza in my life. Well, he said, let's go. He's just, there's a place just down from where you live. And I had a one bedroom apartment in a basement that I was living in with my wife and uh, at the time. And uh, she was a nurse and I was in the police force. And she, uh, she, I went down there with him. It was about 10 o'clock at night, I guess we got there. And I walked in, I had no idea. And as I walked in, I looked up at the sign that said Boston Pizza and Spaghetti House. I'd never heard anything about this thing in place. There was one only. So anyway, we sat down, got this menu. It was like, a, it was so small. My partner ordered something. I ordered something. And I'm, the pizza comes in there. It was in a, a pie plate. And I'm, it's sitting in front of me. And I said, well, where's the knife and fork? And uh, the guy comes, I called the waiter over. And I said, where's the knife and fork? He said, read the menu. So I read the man says, eat pizzas, eat with your fingers. That was my first experience of having a pizza ever. And uh, he laughed at me and he said, what do you think? And I said, it tastes good. I'll have some more of this. And that was it. I, because it was so close to my, where I lived, Manjit, that I got to know the guys behind the counter, which were the owners. And was, one was Gus Adjurides. We became the very closest of friends. And it was within... About 18 months, I was studying with another policeman who was in Edmonton at the time, Don Spence. And he and I were sitting there talking one day and he said, you know, that we should get one of these things. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And I'm not getting out of the police force. I'm fine. Well, about that time, I got a call to go and see the commanding officer. And he said, you're going to be moving to Toronto and you're going to tr- be training people again. And I thought, oh, my God, I, I don't want to do that. Because you didn't want to move to the big city or you didn't want to go to the office? I did, I'd or? never been to Toronto. I'd never been what east of uh, Winnipeg, basically. So I went home. I said, I'm, uh, I'm leaving the outfit. I think I'll get in the pizza business. So it was like over a period of about a month we talked about it. The first time you had pizza, you didn't know anything about being an entrepreneur, I imagine, other than your dad, a barber. Um, but I don't know how involved you were. It didn't seem like you were very involved there. But so you weren't a chef. You weren't an entrepreneur. You'd never run a business before. What made you even seem that it's plausible that you could open a pizza restaurant. Well, Don and I are both sitting there and neither one of us had any experience. And, but we saw these, the crowds coming to this restaurant. And by this time, they had opened the second with another brother and the other side of Edmonton. And, and everybody was, it was packed every night. And it was just sort of that sort of thing. It wasn't because we knew what we we're going to do, but we'd hung out there long enough to see what was going on. It seemed simple. It was a very simple business. So with that, we both started saying, you know, we could do it. So I got my pension money. I figured my pension would be something that I'd saved up over the years I'd been there. It was not very much. I needed five grand more. So where do you, you go back home and you talk to my father? Now, he sounded like you just sounded. And he turned to me and he said, you're going into business that you know nothing about. Do you want me to lend you $5,000. And I said, yeah, I just need a hand. He said, no, you need a psychiatrist. Got a good job paying and all this stuff and sort of thing. The next morning, I thought, well, I'll have to go and talk to somebody else because that didn't work. Anyway, I sat with my mother the next morning, as most guys will talk to their mother, see if they'll talk to the dad. The, the phone rang. My dad had never been on the phone that I'd ever heard of. He phoned, he said, get your rear end up to the bank and see Dumbleton, the, the manager. 
And I said, Mr. Dumpleman? He said, yeah. He said, he's got something for you. So I went in the bank and there was the $5,000. So I got the $5,000. I got out the door. We opened the store. Three years later, I went back to pay the loan off. And he's laughing like I'd never seen that man laugh at all. He just, he was, he was big grin on his face when I walked in with the money. And I said, here's a, the money to pay off the loan. And he said, there was never a loan, Jim. You paid it off the day you arrived. Anyway, and from there on, it, it, it grew. We, we worked hard at it. We worked seven days a week. And I, what I did, my second store was when I went back to Prince George, where I had been stationed. It was an upgrowing town. It was busy with young people. And that's what turned our whole business around. That, that place was just, we were lined up every night. Have you always been a risk taker? Yeah, I, I think what calculated risk, Manjeet, more than anything, maybe, but uh, I look at the people or, or the deal and who I'm dealing with. That, that's a big piece for me. As you know, being on Dragon's Den or any of these other, uh, other things we've done, I've, I've looked at it and say, who am I dealing with? What am I dealing with? Am I going to be happy down the road with that person? How did they react to you and I or anybody else? Look me in the eye and they can say this or, or other people that say, tell you a great story, but there's no substance behind it. And I think that's what I was taught. Police force was a great teaching. You know, you had to read people really quickly because if you didn't, it could cost you really dearly. That is very true. I noticed you were very quick at reading people within minutes of them walking in the den. So those first three years of, you know, opening um, your first store and then your second, what was the biggest challenge for you? I think it's just the hours. We, we were never scared of hard work. We would be open till two in the morning and four in the weekends. And, and the other thing that happened in Penticton was circumstance. First year we opened, we opened in a, it was at a, the store we opened was 511 Main Street in Penticton. And it was, and everybody will remember this, lived out in this part of the world. It was a, a small pizza place. We had about 80 seats in the, in the dining room, but it was a, it was a uh, apartment store before. So there was a basement, big uh, stairway down to the basement. I and my wisdom said, hey, why don't we throw some tables and chairs down there and we have a little speakeasy and we can sell down there as well. So it turned out that little speakeasy became a nightclub. And it was the first one in the Okanagan Valley. And it was called Boston's Bottom. Really original. But anyway, we opened the first nightclub and it, it, was, it cost us a lot more than we thought it was. I was going to, I was going to ask you any regret from, you know, moving from being an RCMP officer into getting into pizza. And I guess the answer is going to be no. <laughs> it, you know, it's not no, but it's, I missed the work. I love the work I was in at the last part of it. You know, when I was working in, in crime and stuff like that, it's, it's really interesting. And you, you forget about, I, I wasn't there because of the paychecks. So when I got into this business, I love the paydays. When it, they started to come, it took a while. It wasn't overnight. And that's what I say to a lot of entrepreneurs. If you've got something that's really good, work it hard and see what it's going to do. Don't just give up first time you get a bend in the road. When you opened that first Boston pizza, there wasn't lineups at the door and it wasn't profitable the day, day one. Unlike people, you know, assume when they read somebody or see somebody's story, you went from a stable career with the RCMP to, you know, to pursue an entrepreneurial path that was very risky. I think the biggest thing was we had a, I can remember going to get a loan to do this nightclub that we had in the basement when we found out we had to we had to comply with the liquor laws and all this stuff. And so I went in and I remember sitting talking uh, somebody, uh, one of the liquor inspectors that we were talking about. And he said, have you ever dealt with the Federal Development Bank? And I said, never heard of it. He said, well, it's a federal uh, money they're putting out for guys that like yourselves. 
So I went up to see the guy and his name was Kardashev. I'll never forget him. He got me in and I went in to see him and we sat there and I laid all the stuff out I was doing. And he said, well, you know, the rules with coming to the Federal Development Bank, Jim, is you have to be turned down by at least two banks. I said, hell, I can get all five. So that's why we got the loan, I swear. But anyway, we that's how we got financed. And, and to your point is, it was not easy. So that was, you know, all the lessons you learn if you listen to people and you surround yourself with some great people. My partner and I and the people there. And then we decided we were doing corporate stores to start with. And we started looking at franchising because it was brand new at that time. Because there was two of them out there. One was Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was A&W. And if you look back in those days, they haven't changed their colors. They haven't changed anything in their stores since they started. What they did was they just tell you in a different way of what how good their product was. And that's what we looked at. You know, there's lots of people doing pizza. We're not the cheapest. We're not the most expensive. We're the middle of the, the road. And that's the way we felt we had to keep it. Yeah, it was so different for other people that when we when I decided to say, let's let's franchise. Like, I think we served 80,000 customers last week across Canada. But you look at, I only deal with 500 people that are franchisees. And when you look at that, that's what it's all about. And to me, that's, uh, now we've got 11, what is it, 1,100 franchisees. To grow from one store, you know, in 1968 to over 400, and then to take this risk um, once again to go into a new business model, which was franchising. And you yourself, there was only two that, that were existing that knew what they were doing and that were doing well at it. So you essentially had to, you know, invent, reinvent the wheel on your own as to what franchising was. But then you also had to tell others what a franchise, owning a franchise, um, meant. And so, how did you go from really being um, and running your own stores to understanding and then developing this franchise model with not only having no experience, but really not being able to have a lot of other people around you to say, hey, this is how it's done. You know, now there's lots of people, there's, you know, thousands of franchises that, you know, step by step how it goes. So how did you do that? Well, I think the one thing is I say we built it one, one store at a time. First of all, I didn't know anything about franchising. So I went to a lawyer that was a friend of mine, and uh, we talked about it. And he said, well, you, you, there's three that I know. And he said, maybe we'll get their franchise agreements. So we got KFC. And this one we had was Dairy Queen. We looked at Dairy Queens, and it was the one that was sort of simpler than the rest of them were. And that's what we took. And, and so we created our own, basically created our own. And then we went out and said, can we do this? Can we show them what we had? How you, how you operate. So we had to put a plan together, how much training you want to have when you, when you sold a franchise, how much you're going to charge for it. I think the biggest thing more than anything, Manji, was to sit down and make sure the first two or three were going to be successful. And I think it's important to get it right in one place or two places before you're able to duplicate it because there's a lot of mistakes you make that you're able to figure out and able to iron out the finer details. So what do you think is the most common mistake that restaurant owners make um, when trying to scale from one to five to 10 to 400 um, or even to franchise? I, I look at why, how did we do it? It was the fact that we made money with what we, we were taking in, in, in each individual store. I think if you're doing really well and in in it's duplicate, 
you know, I look at the, probably the toughest ones were like Keg, and I know the guys at Keg really well and saw what they did for years. They only stayed in British Columbia and then they went to Alberta. But I think the hardest part is, is the product. You know, we've been in the takeout and delivery business since day one. I was the first one at least never believed in delivering. I did. And when, so when we moved to BC and he was in Alberta, he never came to see us. He didn't, you know, he was just, we were out there and paid, make sure he paid our monthly fees. We started experimenting with, you know, well, somebody wants pizza at the, after the hockey game in Penticton. We'll deliver it down to his motel. So we had, I don't know, 50 hotel, motels in the town in the summertime. Well, we started delivering and we sent it out by cab. All those things we tried. And I think with restaurateurs, they have a tendency to just focus on the one thing and then they think, well, I'll build another one. And I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. There's lots of guys that are gone corporate, but I'm, I'm talking with guys in the country now that in these times when it's top, top times in the, in the restaurant industry, what we're pushing now is that you're, it's not Jim Trilliving that owns your, your Boston pizza in, in Scarborough. It's, this is the family name that's running that. So I think it's helped us in that, in that side. Yeah. And I think that, just like any other business that you can stay stagnant. But one thing I hear in your story over and over again is that you're a pioneer and you really did take a lot of risks, whether it be franchise, whether it be delivery, whether it be different parts um, of the country, not just, so you, you, you tried a lot of things. I'm sure those, you know, those are the things that worked, but I'm sure you tried lots of things that also didn't work. Right. And I, I think the other side to that too, is it was not just us saying, let's try it. It was our customer asking for it. You look at yourselves and your company. Why did you leave from just one product to multi-products? It's because the customer, the demand was there. That, that's a big thing. I, I think it's what, listen to what your customer has to say. So I wanted to touch on, um, you know, the rise of delivery apps and how it's affected restaurants. Shed some light to me on your thoughts of, um, do you think that they're here to stay? Do you think that they're negative um, for the restaurant industry? Or do you think it's a positive um, delivery apps? You know, when it first started, we didn't want to do it because we had our own cars and we were doing our own thing. In hindsight, one of the biggest things I missed, I should have taken all our cars and, and called it Jim's Delivery. Because I, we were already in the business. We we're already delivering. So we should have formed our own company to do it. Having said that, there's four or five companies now, or I think six now that I, I deal with, we're dealing with. And competition's great because what's happened is we're starting to see the prices lower of cost of delivery. When it first came out, we didn't even do it. We cut, we, we kept doing our own thing. We were still doing 10 to 15% of our business was takeout and delivery. But when this pandemic hit and with that, with the delivery systems they got, there was restaurants and grocery stores and everything else had to jump into that because there was no way to get their food out any other way. But I think the takeout and delivery business is a good thing. If you can, now that we got a bunch of them in there, because now we can negotiate prices down to the consumer. Right. Because, you know, that's the downside, I think, for the consumer is that, and for the restaurateur, um, you know, I am restaurants true. And I know that, you know, it, it cuts into your, your cost and your profit and quite a bit. Absolutely. 
So I have to get into Dragon's Den. Uh, you are the only dragon that has been around um, since season one, one to 15, which is pretty incredible. And you've invested in everything from tea to bike repair uh, companies and many, many in between. Um, so talk to me a little bit about um, investing. Had you ever invested before season one of Dragon's Den in any startup business? Yeah, I did a, a number of things. I, I got into some real estate uh, and in the oil, oil and gas business because I knew a little bit about that and that can hurt you more and it can help you sometimes. We started a hockey league in the United States. Everybody thought we were crazy. Uh, we franchised nobody, uh, even the National Hockey League isn't a franchise. So we were the first to franchise that. We built it to 23 teams. We sold it to the East Coast Hockey League, which is now operating there uh, in all our space. And we built 10 arenas uh, at approximately $75 million a pop. Uh, we built 10 of those in the United States and they're still operating and, and we sold them off. So yeah, we started a lot of other stuff before I got to Dragon's Den. And then- but somebody like you who has seen thousands of pitches over the years, what has changed when it comes to pitchers from year one to year 15? But also not only with the pitchers, but with you as how you see um, the an investment. Well, I think the, the one thing that's changed drastically since year one to years 15 is the fact that they've seen, the people coming on season 15 have seen what's gone on before. Season one was more ideas. There was there were really weren't businesses. I've got this idea. So they came on with the, and I think the show at that time wanted that because they didn't know it, whether we would invest or anybody invest in anything. And so it was more of an idea thing that was, and, and none of us had uh, in the first, I know in the first two, maybe two years or three years even, uh, I don't think anybody had any side guys that were working outside and saying, well, go and sign this guy up after you're done. You, you, you sort of got, can I get your name and your full name and your address after the deal was done? Then it evolved. And all of a sudden, the numbers became the big thing. If this is so good, why do you need us? And uh, that's what started to change. And then the deals as that progressed probably for another five years from the, I would say from, you know, the past five years or six years, seven years, it's changed into bigger deals. What you're looking at now is people are coming on with multi-million dollar deals. It was a big deal when we got somebody that said something, you know, way back, you know, uh, it's $500,000. Oh my God. Who's going to put up that kind of money. Right. <clears throat> well, now when you look at it, even last couple of years it's there's lots of deals that are well over a million dollars that, that's really interesting to see that um i imagine from your eyes that how it shifted uh, you know i i i have only seen i'd say shift in the kinds of businesses um that have come more tech last few businesses than year one of mine but also um i agree with you the size definitely but also the potential right so talk to me as a prolific um, investor, um, what are some red flags that you notice and see from entrepreneurs that really make you say, no, this is not for me um, when when listening to pitches? I think the biggest thing for me is my my technology side is slim and none and slim left town. I want to, I focus on what I'm good, what I think I know I'm good at. Technology's not one of them. And and I got in into tech with other entrepreneurs and, uh, and dragons and, and learned a lot more than I used to know. And of course, the people I have working with me now in my management group, they are all tech. 
when I look back, probably six or seven years when I go back in, in Dragon's Den and I look at my own business, we had one person in tech. Now it's 37 or 40. And that's what's required because of our franchisees wanting things, of pay at the table, da-da-da-da-da, the way all this stuff is going. The same thing in Dragon's Den. Is there a category that you don't invest in? Uh, in general, Dragon's Den or not? Yeah, I just invest in things I know, uh, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and if there's a deal that I think the person has that I can learn from and see, I'll jump at it. I remember, and I go back to one like Bellafix. You know, I, had, I rode a bicycle when I was a kid. I never, <clears throat> this guy comes on with a truck and he's going to do this. And he's going to do that. One truck. That's all they had. I'm looking at him and say, can you make money with it? You know, you got this Mercedes truck, one driver. And I thought, when I'm listening to the guy, the more he, or the two guys, and, and the third guy being the guy who put it all together, and 20, he was 21 years old. And I, and I stepped into that truck that day on the set. It sounded like I was taking into my own store the first time I did it. That little voice in the back was saying, this is no dent. This is just a different product than what you started with. If we can franchise this, can't we? why couldn't we franchise that? And that's why they came on the show was looking for somebody like me that was a, an expert supposedly in franchising. Well, you learned along the way. And that was the reason I look at Bellafex today where they're at over 200 trucks doing really well, can't keep up with demand now. And when we look at here, we've got a, we're all over the United States and Canada. You know, that one truck started it all. Same with one pizza place. So I looked at those things and I think that's what every one of us looks at and say, can we take it to another level? And Steep Tea was another company we involved in. It was a lady and great people, fantastic people. And that's what you're dealing with. Again, you're dealing with people. And look at their day, they're a huge company. And I think that those are the companies that I looked at over the years. And there's just a few. There's there's the lady that brought magnets and put them on your fridge. I mean, she was working it all night and she's done really well with that business. And uh, for you, it sounds like it's more about the people than it is about the industry or the product. Yeah. And and if the product is you know is out there, that's fine. It's who's going to push that product. A lot of the stuff that I invested in is their family type business. And that what comes on the den is some of them are a lot the same way. So what motivates you to continue working with entrepreneurs and, you know, unlike your partner to, you know, retire? I wish I could give you a straight answer to that, but I just love being around people like that. I, maybe that's what it is, Mindy. I, I, I just, I love seeing somebody take off. It's not, it's not the money anymore as much as that. I'd love to see this something grow. And, you know, it, I've had people come to me, including my, my family, and said, Dad, are you going to still keep doing in this business? And I said, yeah, there's countries we haven't even touched yet. How do you expand? Look at you guys. Same thing. And that's what you got to do. Why do you do it? What gets up? Why do you get up in the morning to go and do that? It's because you have fun doing it. Um, so my last question for you is going to be, as I was reading up, um, I saw this quote that you um, said. It said, live your dream, don't live your parents' dream. So what did you mean by that? Well, I think we all are raised uh, a certain way and, and, and every family is different, right? And your parents have expectations of what they want you to do. 
And, and high for my children, yes. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that when we first started out, you know, my parent, my dad said, you know, you want to be this, this, and this. My grandmother, who was little Irish grandmother at that, you know, she and she had to leave the country because she married an Englishman. So you imagine in her day, she came out to Canada in the late 1800s as a new bride with an English. He wasn't an aristocrat, but he was his father was the uh, was the uh, admiral in the British Navy. And his eldest son married this Irish woman and said, you got two choices. You can either go to Canada or you can go to Australia. So Canada was his first choice. So he brings my little Irish grandmother out here. And she had a, a thing that she often taught me, or I, I remember her saying it to me. And she'd been gone a long, long time. But she said, Jim, you know, there's no such word in the dictionary called can't. You can do anything you want. Don't let somebody just put you in a, in a slot. I could, if you had told me that I was ever going to leave Ireland and I was going to marry an Irishman, and I was going to live in Canada. I would have told you you're crazy, but we did. We left, and we and we and we we could do anything we wanted when we got here. So I think that that's why I look at saying things like that. Is that I think you got to look at what's in you. You're given a whole bunch of stuff by your family. Here's the you know when you turn 18 to 20, and I think guys are are slower than women by far. I've said to my boys in the family. You guys don't know what you want to do until you're about 30. The women know what they want to do when they're about 10. They're way ahead of us. So don't even try and compete. But I said, do what you feel that you want to try. You know, it's not maybe it won't be successful the first time, but you're going to learn something from it. You learn how to ride a bicycle. You just don't get on and go 100 miles an hour. Some people are not comfortable with being an entrepreneur. Somewhat like being working for an organization and rise up in the organization. But do what you think is comfortable for you. Very true. Well, thank you so much, Jim, uh, for joining me and talking with me today. It, wow, it went by so quick. Well, thank you. And, it, you know, it's great working with you and Dragon Stand. I love you, your uh, entrepreneurship that what you, you, you and your family have accomplished. Uh, it's your inspiration. I say that to other people, that you are one of the greatest that I've ever met. Thank you, Jim, for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider rating us on iTunes. Be sure to follow the show so you can hear new episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one.